0: But perhaps these comments also reflect an even greater fear, the fear of movements like Me Too or Black Lives Matter or The Dreamers that operate beyond the control of what control and companies scheme left. Perhaps these movements have become too uppity in the eyes of some leftists, and they welcome Trump's assault. There is little Let's difference sure. in my mind, mind between a Nazi and a Nazi apologist. A Trumpist and a Trump apologist. Once you apologize for something long enough, you become that thing. Yeah, so, okay. just, so there's a little a difference Nazi. between,
1: yeah, he did. Um, <clears throat> uh, and there's no difference between a liberal apologist and a liberal then.
0: It is another episode of Pop Left uh, with me, Douglas Lane, and... T-Derek if you want to know how I'm feeling today, let me show you something. When I go like this, this is it. This is this is my I've turned into. I need a haircut, but also I've been pulling my hair. Um, uh, I had a, a an incident with uh, YouTube. I created a video. I uploaded the video. No, this is this is objectionable. This is this isn't suitable for most advertisers. We're going to demonetize this. So I went through the video piece by piece and tried to find what I thought were objectionable aspects of the video, right? And I edited those out, like shots of people carrying guns, uh, mentions of the American Empire. And then I re-uploaded each section until each section was monetized as an unlisted video. I put it all together, uploaded it again. Guess what, Derek? It... They said that you did not meet monetize criterion. Yeah, they demonetized me again. Even though each part of it was monetizable. So yeah, go watch the video. I'm gonna put a link to it. Um all right, so enough about that. Um so Derek, I I originally uh asked you to come on again. This I mean, we're gonna do this every month, but I wanted to discuss logic and um Reason it was after having interviewed Chris Catrone, where we ended up in. I ended up in a position where he was accusing me of being uh, kind of like an analytic philosopher and having too much faith. Not even full on Aristotelian logic. Just you know, uh, insisting on arguments that make sense. Look, you know, trying to avoid fallacies and things like that. And my objection to him at the time was not that. I think, and it's certainly my objection now is that n- not that I thought everything could be settled simply like a, like a logic problem or, or like mathematically, uh, well, you know, if you just had the right back in figure it out the truth, but that it was, uh, you know, necessary, but not sufficient. Yeah. Well, to argument, to, to use arguments and to avoid fallacies. You don't throw away what Hegel called mere understanding in the process of doing dialectics. Um,
1: no. Um, and in fact, I mean, I like to talk a little bit about what Hegelian dialectics really is because dialectics as a tradition develops in, uh, Indian schools of argumentation and logic. Um, it develops and ancient Greek schools of argumentation and logic. And what dialectics is in a formal sense before Hague, and that's important. We got to put the cat, the asterisk mm-hmm. on that. Um, really before Kant, all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, is where, where you have contested terminology, all right. And you, Engage in a dialogue to debate the validity of the terminology
0: This because sounds like Socrates to me this is Yes, like- that
1: actually the Socratic dialogues are, dial- are classical dialectics yeah. um, As are like the Melinda Pata, etc. What Hegel does is for reasons that are complicated through... Um, going through Kant, and we read, uh, and and we're going to apply this to some degree. But we read um, Aristotle's Kant and Hegel's Logic, um, Part One: the Logic of Aristotle and Kant. Um,
0: it's actually, really now, I started. I read Part Two because I got okay. to the end of Part One. I was like, No, 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 this isn't enough. We, I got to read what he said The so, he, of Hegel. But anyhow, um, go ahead. There's a little bit in there that I think is. That,
1: that's interesting that reminds me why Hegel did have to reintroduce dialectics but how he did it which was dialectics as evolving in time to add history as a vector in the 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 reasoning um, because of the problems of not just um, synthetic a, a priori and just remind people what that is an analytic
0: a priori... Why don't we start with Aristotle a little bit? Just like, what were the pro- what was the problem that Aristotle was trying to overcome? Because he spends a great deal of time on... Aristotle's this
1: trying to get beyond the Pythagorean and Platonic need for forms to internally exist for, for argumentation to be true. It's not that Aristotle rejected their forms. He just rejected that basically we could deduce all logic from eternal
0: truths derived from geometry um, right and and the epistemic thing that he was trying to overcome was the way in which we uh, arrive at the forms or true understanding would be through just remembering right right um uh, rather and so he was trying to develop a, an approach to understanding that would be active and present rather than uh, passive and, and passive right
1: because the, 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 the um, is, is it the Timaeus? It is the Timaeus. And Plato. Um, Plato's answer to epistemology is like, you already know everything. Uh, been, a veil of ignorance has been laid upon you in your birth and you are just uncovering it. Right? That's his argument. So, so metaphysics is ontology, is actually epistemology for Plato. They're, they're, they're different ways of saying the same thing.
0: Yeah, I don't ever understand the difference between metaphysics and ontology. It's been explained to me lots of times and I never get it. But but ontology being epistemology seems like a a major thing to me, but anyhow go on. Well, yeah, I mean, well you're collapsing, you know, justified
1: true belief is is the translation for what Plato believes that um knowledge is, but justification is is experience of the forms. Plato's uncomfortable with this, and we know Plato's uncomfortable with this because in the Parmenides, mm-hmm. uh, Parmenides actually defeats the argument,
0: right? Uh, so, <laughs> right. so you know, in a very if... convoluted and strange and oh yeah, Alice in Wonderland kind of way. But I mean,
1: it is weird, and and it's one where you have to actually kind of know all the kind of crypto. Well, crypto for us, but not for them. Are what we might say quasi-religious ideas that are going on in, in Plato. Aristotle wants to minimize what we might call the, the quasi-religious ideas. Are the metaphysical assumptions like you know the the, the he does have them the unmoved mover, um, emanation, etc. cetera, but he's he's trying to get the, get like how we base reasoning down to as little as possible um and the problem is pretty clear pretty instantly though is the kind of logic he develops and his i think six works that actually touch on logic Mm -hmm. um can't actually deal any better with primary axioms um than uh the forms do although i think teleology is a little you know Telios, uh, you know calls uh um but I'm butchering the Greek, I don't know how to speak Greek, but Yeah,
0: I, I could looked at it and saw, oh, I recognize that squiggle right from one sentence to the next um, uh
1: what that's about is is trying to find like a way to talk about validity of concepts and validity of concepts is applied to objective truth, so okay, so what is that? Well, we can talk about what is necessary and what is sufficient well sufficient conditions can be accidents according to Aristotle. so uh, but, um so can uh so can accidental thing but what is necessary is what is both true to the thing all right and true to the thing in all time and if you can universalize it it is true to the thing in all time so it's like three criterion um and i'm not i don't Unfortunately, I'm not sure I know the Greek words because the paper we had left the Greek and Greek. Um, but so that's how you get the, 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 the idea of the teleology. What is true to a thing that is unique to it? I forgot the uniqueness criterion, but is, but is true in all instances and in all cases. All right. And so the teleos of the thing is what is, what it exists for. It exists for the thing. It's what is, what is both unique and universal to it. Now, there's all kinds of problems with that. I mean, it's not hard to see the problems with that. I mean, people saw the problems with it at the time. Um, But it does lay down like some kind of criterion for testing concepts. And it stands for an Islamic and Christian um, and Neoplatonic even uh, thinking. It stands as valid logic for a about you know seventeen hundred years, eighteen hundred years. It's it's a long time. Um, now there's ironies to this is is as a uh, Hegel is, well as the author notes that Hegel notes that if you actually were strictly using Aristotelian logic, all of Arist- Aristotle's deductions about like biology, which is most of what he actually wrote, he wouldn't have done because they don't actually fit his logical criteria. Mm-hmm. But. um Nonetheless, it does give you a grounds of dealing with concepts, so particularly when you add the law of non contradiction. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, when you get to Kant, Kant Kant and Hume, you know, cabinet at the same time, start to realize that that, that these this Aristotelian predicate logic and then uh deduction, once once Descartes come up with his, you know, self original basis for knowledge mm-hmm. you got a problem because you can't justify a priori since synthetic statements so a posteriori synthetic statements are statements based off of um experience mm-hmm. um objectively told so you we have to all have to remember that Kant breaks down statements about experience into subjective statements and objective statements uh mm-hmm. subjective statements is i perceive the rock is and this is what's used in the paper this is also are, the
0: way me. i think about that these are kinds of claims right rather than justified true beliefs in either instance right there's mm-hmm. the claim oh the um the sun hit the rock and the rock got warm um that's a subjective uh claim and the objective claim would be when the sun, sh- when sunshine hits rocks, they, it, they become warm. Right. That's the uh, objective claim. That's a universalization of the experience. And the British empiricists hit a problem. And this problem
1: is stated by Hume, mm-hmm. even though, you know, they're scientific. Uh, Hume's problem that you can't truly make a statement. Um, inductively that is true in all cases based off your own experience aka you can't arrive at a synthetic a priori based off an experience is a huge huge problem for philosophy, even philosophy right. of science because it's like it's like you, you, if you assume that, you cannot assume there is ever any predictability to anything
0: Right. And to say that in really plainly, mm-hmm. the assumption is, is that what's happened in the past will continue to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all it is. It's like, because I've seen this happen ump, umpteenth number of times, the sun hits a rock, the rock becomes warm. I assume it's going to become going to behave the same way in the future when sunset, when sunshine hits rocks, so it'll become warm. And we don't have any justification for that belief that the, future will resemble the past yeah none mm.
1: uh, which makes getting to axioms really hard so there's right. a couple of ways you in, in english philosophy there's a couple of ways they tried to handle this um one is presupp- presuppositionalism um which is you just have to assume some kind of basis for being and go with it it's actually often used by christians um the other is abduction which is kind of a probabilistic argument that we can say something is true inductively because it is probabilistically true. Um, that's a 20th century uh, third kind. Of-
0: how is that? How do people think that gets around the problem?
1: I, I, I don't think it gets around the problem. I think it's right. like, it's kind of a cop-out. It's like, well, mathematically we can say, and, and here's the problem with it. And this is a problem Kant realizes. Okay, you want to have probability as your answer for that. But how do you justify math? Um, because math, to get back into our categories here, analytic concepts are a priori. Right? Like, I can't have a square circle. That's uh, that's category error because of the definitions, right? Mm-hmm. The definitions are incompatible. That uh, There's nothing synthetic about that. I didn't experience squares. Like, anytime you have an abstract that you have to rely on a definition you're dealing with, a synthetic um, a priori. And this is why when I talk about a lot of like, when we talk about like sociological concepts, well, it's like, well, what's the criterion of cohesiveness, right? Mm. All right, because that's how you test a synthetic a priori. Is it in contradiction with itself? Do you have definitions that are inconsistent, et cetera? And that those truths are just analytic truths, right? -hmm. Tautology is our analytic truths. um, When you're when you're doing conceptual analysis or analytic truths, now how do we then deal with like concepts that are contested? All right, that's one problem. Mm -hmm. We talked about classical dialectics, which is basically
0: we argue about it. (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. uh, um, but if we have Aristotelian logic, we argue about it in a particular way.
1: Right. Right. Again, if you get down to the axiomatic assumptions in Aristotelian logic, what if you're not dealing with um, teleology, right? Mm-hmm. You still don't have any way to decide what the axioms are going to be. I can prove that the axioms are false if they're if they contradict each other, and that's a huge gain, right? Mm-hmm. But I can't prove, um, like. If I say, no, one equals two, all right? Like, that's a, that's a total, that's a shift. How do I adjudicate that? Well, I can say, okay, well, the definition of one is the quanta of one being it is both necessary and sufficient to, and universalizable to this definition, therefore blank, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the definition of two, okay, but what if I start to collapse those? And there are ways mathematically in... not going to get into them you can start to collapse them um
0: through basically running the math
1: usually through calculus and ways to start bending the concepts
0: um i want to tell you a story to kind of illustrate what you're saying in a a real kind of personal way okay and it has to do i i recorded a conversation with Susanna kleeman yesterday Mm -hmm. and we were discussing Baudillard, and i started the conversation by saying, listen, uh the way I conceive of BODR is blah, blah, blah. You know, I he, he he broke from Marxism, he misunderstood Marx. Um I read his book on Marxism, got the categories wrong, blah, blah, blah. And her reaction to that was, you know, that I was just trying to uh presume an authoritative stance. No, it's not it's right? it, Right. But that's what her reaction was, was like, Oh, yes, King Doug, I know you know more than I do. Oh, yes. Now, and, and she got, uh, you know, she really liked Bodiar and she was uh, upset with me. And now, admittedly, I, I had begun by, by asserting I didn't begin with an argument that I laid out, you know, and saying, but the problem, the reason I didn't was because in order to go through one of the arguments that I might have against Bodhiyard, I would have had to take a lot of time to do it. It just would have taken a lot of time, and to you know, it was a back and forth conversation. But, but maybe the other reason I didn't was because I egotistically wanted to presume some authority. But here's the thing that got me as we went through the conversation: she pointed out how today, um, getting to the end of an argument is how i'll put it but or dealing with the data or having enough information so that you can know that you've just on an analytic level understood something Mm -hmm. has become uh practically impossible for most people and maybe all of us on on about certain things right and bodear points this out when he talked about the obesity of of information like Mm -hmm. you know you ask for the data, empirical data from a company, the government says, uh, "Hey, oil company, give us all the data, your data about what you've, what your activities were over the last year," and you get a warehouse full of documents. Um, so, and that, and that also occurs, I've noticed, in online discourse because that's pedantry. You know, mm-hmm. it's the 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 problem there. Like you you, are you get down to a, an endless battle over definitions and and um and uh you know arguing about minutia, um but not be, but to try to say no we're going to stop here we don't need to keep d- debating these terms seems like an imposition it just it, there's no there's no argument or justification for it and so the question i you have is at what point do we all just end up starting from intuition Um, How do we, or insert, which is another way of saying asserting authority.
1: Are the concepts being spoken about related to each other in actuality? So just because something uses the same word as something else and -hmm. thinks it refers to the same thing. When you look at how the concepts are being employed in one case set and being employed in another, Mm -hmm. you see if the, if the conditions of their employment are the same, and if the conditions of their employment are different, even if this person is talking about what this person is saying, um, Mm -hmm. you can say, objectively, they are misrepresenting the terminology because the case sets are different. You do not have to go through infinite information to do that. And in fact, in analytic categories, the criterion is... Does this make sense, and does X align to X? So if you're saying value is value as it is a Capital Volume 1, what are the case conditions it, that, in which that word emerges? Luckily, okay. one of the confusing things about capital that you really have to understand is it is argued both through the science of logic from Hegel, but it's also, properly speaking, even in the old school sense, dialectical. Meaning that Marx ten- wants to define his terms by walking through cases of the argument set out by Smith, to go through it and then go through show that okay we've seen from this 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 and this what emerges from this is this concept is valid because it it corresponds you know Marx Marx's materialism has a kind of a rough correspondence like like mm-hmm. ideas this is different from hegel but it is important to understand um so but we can see from this that this concept called commodity mm-hmm. emerges from this set of arguments like and right. we can apply this run through it and then arrive at the definition now it is maddening in certain cases because mm-hmm. you go through all three thousand words and or more i mean not three thousand words three thousand pages of capital and for example he doesn't ever actually derive working class from its description. He just continuously describes it um, and, and, and stuff like that, because he didn't finish the text, right? Mm. That's maddening, totally maddening. But for commodity and value and stuff, we have those case, those case conditions actually fairly thoroughly mm-hmm. from Marxist description. I will admit, though, asterisk on value, Marxist descriptions are contestable even using Marxist terms. But what we can say um, is there ha- is that given the case sets in Marx, even if there's ambiguities about those case sets, value form versus this versus TSSI yeah, right. versus SSI, whatever, that none of those include subjective valuing, as in to just care for something or for something to be worth something. Right, and th-
0: you're referring to Baudillard's w- approach value right evaluate, right yeah and okay so right so there that we can find uh yes and but i i feel as though um if i was suzanne Kleeman, i would say well um you know basically so what is what you would say to that which which i don't think is justifiable but but um because what you have to what i would have to demonstrate to her is look the reason why um it matters that podiar gets these concepts wrong is because he's beginning with a critique of marx he's not right. beginning if he somewhere just else.
1: employing a concept of value it is irrelevant if he has the same definition of marx that's what that's actually why i talk about I talk about like we have to be nominalist, and I'm putting in quotation here because I'm not—I don't actually mean formally speaking nominalist in like the 11th century sense. So. Right, but right. when we talk about class, when we deal with non-Marxist class theories, because their case conditions are different, how they define the term is different. They're just not talking about the same thing, mm-hmm. and we can know that, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so we can use that to disaggregate when we're talking past each other because mm-hmm. they're using one definition that gives you. A different set of criterion, and this is going to turn out different sets of answers to the problem, and you're using another set now, we can eternally argue about which one is more real, right? Mm-hmm. The reason why Marx talks about class uh at least the two classes we're specifically talking about in capital, the bourgeoisie um and its various forms, and there's a couple of forms in there and and the workers um are the proletariat in it form is because for marx in our society so since those are primary divisions they're also clear divisions and when you get into other cases chief bourgeois surplus army of labor um lumpen uh, lumpen all of those are fuzzier all right that's mm. why sometimes uh neo marxist may call them social categories because they don't describe they don't have the same operational conditions um i think i think that's that's clarifying that's actually not what marx does, but that is clarifying mm-hmm. um, my my only point about that is that it's because Marx thinks that we can understand both their position what is necessary mm-hmm. right a proletariat produces commodities but does not to keep those commodities thus it does not have capital all right mm-hmm. it cannot it cannot capitalize upon um any surplus extracted from commodity exchange and bruce can all right so in that sense since we have something that is both universal to those two categories mm-hmm. and um and unique to those two categories, at least when we're dealing with them in context to each other, um, we can say this is an objective. This is an uh, an objective class distinction.
0: I mean, if, not- and if we take it out of the context of just Marxism in general, you can establish whether or not you're talking about the same thing. Right. Um, and you know, and and um, if you're not, then you can at that point realize that the argument that you're having is not going to be fruitful. And if someone, and if someone's claiming to be talking about the same thing and you can demonstrate they're not, then, you know, you've, you've, you've demonstrated that what they're saying isn't true.
1: Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, yeah. You, it's it not just in analytic circles, we might call that it's not even wrong. It's not, it's just not a thing. It's, it's, it's not true, not because it is wrong, but because it is meaningless. Um, and, And
0: why is it okay? Let me ask you this. I mean, because when I say, "Oh, a dog is uh, an animal," you put a saddle on and ride around. You know, um, aren't I just being wrong there? I mean, rather than not even wrong. I guess yeah. If you if 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 in the sense that you are dealing with,
1: um, an objective check on a on a definition. Um,
0: what you know. I guess when you're not even wrong is when you start with a dog as a horse, and then you throw in that a barn as a skyscraper. And right. You, you exactly. just collect all these things. And then you make a system out of it that is not related to any part of the usual definitions of the term. Right. But, and claim that you are. The problem
1: that I have with Baudrillard in general is that um, sometimes he, you know, I think he's actually quite insightful, But... There are times where he'll say things like, Capitalism is over because it and you know he was saying this in like two thousand and five, two thousand and six, the mm-hmm. book that is published in two thousand and ten. And I'm like objectively speaking, what he just said is false. Like, because he's saying there's no more there's no more turn of the of the value chain because workers don't matter, because it's all a simulation of similar accuracy and blah 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 blah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so what you have is a is a series of assertions. Um and they are just assertions. He, do, he often does not actually argue his case; he just asserts it. Um, and mm-hmm. while I do think like I
0: also like parts of Baudrillard, but I, I also think some of it's frankly oh I, I, I like Baudrillard aesthetically, right. and I think there's some observations about society that hit home, you know that you know that, that seem true, even when I I try to take some distance from that because, you know, what? how am I being narcissistically rewarded by agreeing with Baudrillard? i started I, I to ask, you know. Um, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, no, uh, I, it, it, my critique really my bring up Baudrillard was sort of a distraction. The point was that what we, what you want to do is establish a way to uh, have a dialectic that isn't um, based on mere assertion at any point. That right. isn't just about opinions at any point. And also
1: um, isn't totally dependent when we talk about concepts on empirical data, because the idea that, yes, we have information obesity, but that's actually irrelevant. At any period of time, if you're, if you're deriving all concepts from empirical experience, you have too much information to yeah. generate concepts. There's just no way to do it. Why...
0: And this is why the whole Kantian like, right Kant comes along and says, "Well, look, there are some concepts which we have empirical access to." Right. Those um, are the synthetic a priori. Synthetic a priori is like yeah, of, of time, of of mass. These are things that are but they're conceptual. And then there are analytic categories of which
1: uh, uh, basically. Um, Aristotelian and post Aristotelian lo- uh, predicate logic applies. These are conceptual truths. These are uh, analytic a priori's. So you have synthetic a posteriori's, that's what we know from observation. Analytic a priori, which is what we know by definition, mm-hmm. all right? Basically, like, like we, and we test the definitions and the concepts off of, off of their coherence and criteria. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so that's an analytic category, and then you have a synthetic category, which is which is the synthesis is with the observ- observation with the outside world. That's even what the concept there is referring to. Um, but then you have a problem, and that problem is since sy- synthetic a prioritize. Why are they a problem? Because um, a priori means prior to experience. Synthetic means synthesized with the outside world, as far as camp's concerned. Mm. Um, let me give you an example of why this is important. Math itself is a synthetic a priori. In some ways, this. Uh,
0: because number is, right?
1: Right. Because number is. Like we know the number to be true um, by synthesis, we apply it to things. And we know that there's like one apple because we know, we know the concept of one, but that's an a priori, like, there's no way, there's no way to, the idea, for example, that, that numbers exist in nature, uh, gets you into all kinds of metaphysical problems immediately, which is why we have,
0: it's built into the uh, notion of some of it being something that it uh, arrives as a concept a priori Mm -hmm. before the experience right that the 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 the, concepts our experience relies upon these categories uh you know but they we can't have an experience without them but because of that because they are that the conditions of possibility for experience these are the conceptual conditions of possibility then by you know, we can see that we aren't justifying them through experience. Right. And, and then he, the question is, how are those synthetic a priori categories justified? And what do they relate to? What justifies their truth? Right. And, and, and he basically ends up saying, well, um, uh, n- the noumenal world, which we can have, we, which we have no access to, but have to pause it. Right. So he n- basically
1: doesn't get out of the problem. Right. Uh, like, because he's like, okay, we we can know, we can we can you know we can know synthetic a priori from experience. I.e., we have a definition of one, and we see an apple, and we know that there is one apple. That's easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but but do we know what appleness is? Um, this leads to what is later called the quanta qualia distinction. All right, so like, mm-hmm. um.
0: But it's really kind of bigger
1: than that. That's why it's right. like,
0: um, yeah. because it turns out there is, there is no, uh, quanta. I if I'm remembering quanta qualia, right? It, there's no, there's no, like I think of the quanta qualia distinction as the distinction between, um, like Locke said, you know, colors are, uh, concepts which, uh, arise within our, Mind, they're not actually out in the world beyond us, right? And that's qualia, right? There's objective,
1: um, there's objective conditions that generate colors, but we don't, we cannot experience. But the it colors
0: themselves are our, are a product of our mind,
1: right? They're but There's a lot things of
0: things that. that we can like demonstrate on that way. The optical illusions mm-hmm. demonstrate the way in mm-hmm. which certain things are products of absolutely our mind. Um. So, but yeah. uh in any case, the 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 issue here is, um, for me, the I mean, I'm willing to bracket out um, the the absolute truth, meaning like a Hegelian absolute truth, and still say, okay, I'm I'm struggling with this. I don't, I feel as though, I mean, the question for me is, does Hegel solve the problem? Does he manage not to end up with mere assertion or intuition or opinion in the end? Um of say the phenomenology or in the the, if, with, with the logic does his logic uh become the the solution for the problem I, it, which is i think is what he says but but that yeah. but that question is you know we can assume that it does let's say that we're a good marxist dogmatist and we assume that it does okay because we're hegelian marxists okay um if we assume that it does. That doesn't mean, and this is aimed at Chris Catrone, that we can operate at the level of, absol- of the absolute without also preserving uh, what Hegel would call mere understanding or the analytic tradition or, you know. We have not transcended,
1: transcended whatever, like um, that's an unfortunate term here, but we have not gone beyond the need for predicate logic, uh, symbolic logic, etc the difference between what say a post-hegelian or a hegelian and and i say post-hegelians too because they're they're part of this um and a anglo-american analytic traditionally is not kant because kant kind of sets the whole thing off mm-hmm. um and it is the fact that the the historicism in um, German thinking and in Hegel in specific, they want to do away with. So they want to be able to say that we could arrive at truths for all time. And Hegel's assertion is basically not really, but we are always getting closer through it through negativity, which is you know a
0: a very long isn't isn't that negativity itself a universal truth for all time yeah
1: i mean that but but that would be the absolute would be the absolute manifest in the in in negation and um and and in overcoming that negation you you offhebung
0: or sublate as as we are called here um i mean um way i i understand it's is that when we arrive at the absolute as human beings what we arrive at is the understanding of our own participation and creation of the world um and the transitory nature of uh the truths that we'll um arrive at but also the direction in which we'll we'll also be consciously uh, assuming responsibility for the direction that that goes um and and we won't be abandoning it's not like we are The negation won't be an erasure. It will be a transcendence each time. That's how I understand the concept of... of Right.
1: Self-actualization is like... is a kind of negation that approaches to to Hegel the Absolute. What becomes a problem for Marxists is we... don't really believe... in a non-material Absolute. And... And that's that's where things get murky. That's what that's what turning Hegel on 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 its head means.
0: Like Marx, but, is but still, from my understanding, the solution. that I'm sorry, but my understanding of the solution that is that Marx says we do have a non-material absolute, but that but that absolute is. I would love to find me where that's yeah. said. Well, uh, you know, maybe you're right. But this mm-hmm. is what I think. The, the what I you know what this is what I infer. Okay from reading Marx it's not what I can say he absolutely wrote out but but we have this non material absolute which is human subjectivity or and which sets up our social relationships right our creative capacities socially um mm. which um but which tend to get reified but if we you know I know we start to take them to be apps you know natural for all time but the fact of, of our social relations setting up the terms in which we will interact with the material world and and reproduce ourselves um, is the absolute that so our you know it's again that's the subjectivity that's a that's not that's not out there you know in atoms or it's it's with the the consciousness the social consciousness of humanity which is why
1: one Marxist are not well they weren't I'm going to have to, I can't, I have to caveat everything after all to say, but, uh, Marxist, uh, even though they believe in the, in, like, even though historically most Marxists have believed in the inevitability of communism brackets, Marx says multiple things that contradict each other on that on mm-hmm. brackets. Um, but Marxists generally have until the 1950s. Um, one thing we can say for sure is that. Marxist material, Marxist answer to to flipping Hegel on his head, right,
0: mm-hmm.
1: is is materialism. But materialism here is not mere materialism. It is historic materialism. It's also not mere historicism. All right. And that's the difference. And we can think about what's included. In the basic now, what, yeah.
0: What's the difference between mere historicism and historical materialism?
1: That's a good question, because I have been going through, uh, separately from anything you've asked me to do, Mm-hmm. the German historical philosophers and historical economists. So these are Neo-Kantians, are right-wing Hegelians and the historical philosophers. And the historical economists are people like uh, Gustav Schmöller, um, uh, Max Weber, Therner uh, Sombart. A lot of them actually were Marxist and reverted back to a different form of, of thinking. So historical... um, his historical economists for example they're statist they view societies as historically instantiated they also think that you have to operate with norms uh those norms are reinforced in your economic policies and these are enclosed in a singular system i.e the state complex and its historical instantiation now Mm -hmm. marxists don't think that marxists don't think that you can just do whatever in a closed system
0: like that um no but they there's certain certain things that they do you think like you have to have norms? And what was the first thing you said in that list of things they believe?
1: Uh, wow. Norms that the state is the determiner of the economic conditions, wow. which no, we don't. No, we um, don't. Although a lot of Marxists now currently do, but they don't realize how far off base they are. Um, that historic, like, each, like, historical society is very instantiated. Now, if you think about like, but
0: well, okay. Historical the his the, the society is historically instantiated. I have to like ask, what does that mean? Because it seemed to me like, yeah, Marx. That's is almost circular. That. But Marx, that yeah. that, for
1: example, stage theories of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, Smoller and co would be like, yeah, of course there's are stages, but we set up the norms for those stages. But you know, but they're completely encapsulated, like they're coherent according to.
0: Oh, no. like, they don't have contradictions.
1: They don't have contradictions. It's just about setting norms. Um, and I mean, I've, I've, I've talked about like the relationship between you know, the tra- chartalism and LaSallianism before, but these are, pe- these are the same people. Like like, um, uh, Knapp, the founder of chartalism, which is, you know, where MP and all that comes from, was of the second generation of historical school economists. And if you think about their theory of state money, as completely separate from any other, you know, overarching system. It's like an enclosed system in the way they model it. It's very consistent with this. Marxists don't do that. Why aren't we mere materialists? Christopher Trone, when I was in, uh, when I was in Politico, used to say, you are a bad materialist. By that, he meant you are too materialist. You do not understand the historical instantiation. Okay. Well, what did he mean by that? Um, the best way to, il- the best way to understand this is to illustrate. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's the illustration. Um if you are a N- Newtonian materialist and you believe in both individual and social determination everything that is would always be and will always be and there's nothing you can do about it including for example when I've pointed this out to people if you take this logic to its ultimate conclusion, including arguing against stuff like free will. It's like, well, but it doesn't matter. I'm always going to argue that a compatibilistic state, you're always going to argue ultra-determinism state. This argument itself is irrelevant because we could be nothing else. It, it, it is actually, in some ways, I'm like, it's a self-negating philosophy in that if you take it seriously... um there's no reason to do the philosophy. You, you can't convince anybody of anything because everything is as it always will be from the moment of the first particle break, etc. Marxists don't believe that. There, that, is, that is very clear we don't believe that. And the reason why we don't believe that is we think um, the and superstructure metaphor is confusing because it's a feedback loop uh, and Engels says that over and over again. But the reason why we don't believe that is, is that we believe that we have the ability to, we do have agency as individuals. The agency, if it can instantiate itself if something can understand itself and act for itself through collective agency, other means, uh, institutions, et cetera, you can, you can meaningfully speak about collective agency. Otherwise, you're just speaking about aggregation. Mm-hmm. And as Mark says, history is made in aggregates. Like, it's just what, like, the importance of history is not what individuals do, but what whole systems and things do. Um, but let's, let's get to the, the importance of the difference between historical materialism and materialism. Um, in historical materialism, I am in a feedback loop of my environment, but I do have the ability to change my environment. And my environment also includes in Marxist materialism social relations. So, the way we reproduce society, right? Um, That is necessary. So, Marxist materialism is formal in the sense that it's not merely like modest, you know, substance and in total determination. It is. We have, we have agency to some degree, uh, it is limited by our historical conditions, but we actually change our historical conditions by the way we remake the world. And we do that in two ways, both physically altering the world technologically and socially altering the way we relate to each other to reproduce the materials that we need. All right.
0: right. The, the difficulty for Marxists and people who want to create socialism is that at present we continue to reproduce the same social relationships right. again and again and again and that the those social relationships when you look at them um, as a system I mean Spencer's tells me all Spencer Leonard tells me Marx didn't have a concept of of, of the system but but um, if you when you look at the logic of if you want to use
1: if you want to make Spencer learning habit, if you look at the logic of the totality,
0: yeah right logic of the totality you'll find that it's uh, got a, a primary contradiction and that it because of that uh the the way I'd put it is the uh, aims of the society that uh, help create the, con- the the material conditions like the the aim of freedom mm-hmm. for individuals which is necessary for the to, for the system to arise um are undermined by the the logic of the totality. Um, yeah,
1: so for example, um there's a bourgeois right of free speech. Why is the bourgeois right of free um <laughs> purpose? But it's actually uh, but it, it's actually why is it insufficient? It's not that it's wrong. All right? Marx right. actually spent a whole lot of his life arguing about why free speech is good. But the caveat that he always puts on it is like, okay, but because of the ownership of the means of production and ownership entailing other kinds of rights like association, um, et cetera, I can never truly have free speech as long as like the means to of speech in a Marx Times out of the print and press is privately owned because I cannot under those rights actually assert my my ability to spread my speech. Now how liberals respond to that is thus, is is generally they go all negative rights. Well, free speech is freedom from, Mm. is freedom from coercion against saying something. We don't have to give you the ability to to distribute it in all cases. Um, And so that's, you know, it becomes merely a formal right, like a formal bourgeois right, not a substantive right. that's kind of what's going on when we talk about about uh, the contradiction.
0: Like that's just one form of it. It's not a primary contradiction, but it's a result. Of right. That that's a good example. And just to to take the bait a little bit, in the current moment, when I have been up in arms about state censorship um, of social media and and the, part- the partnering of social media companies with uh, the security state. Um, which i think has been pretty firmly established that, that 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 has happened to the degree to which that partnership uh has always meant that the state just calls all the shots is not clear that, that that isn't the case actually but nonetheless there's a partnership between the security state and the uh, these big companies um uh, when i am objecting to that i'm not saying oh well once we uh you know push back the state the conditions of, of freedom that we have uh under capitalism under the uh, you know on facebook are sufficient i'm just saying you know this is this is the loss of even the formal freedom are you are you still there yeah i'm still there yeah you're just like you're looking at something else i'm si- you're reading something aren't right, you? Are, you are you <laughs> i'm making sure i'm actually checking on something
1: making sure that that i agree with you oh um, go ahead Oh, you're we're just checking out the Twitter files? Yes. No, we're losing the formal freedom
0: because... Because we, that formal freedom is protected in the United States and in the Bill of Rights, which stipulates that the state will not uh, you know, censor or negate the, the free press. Um, right. And, and that includes individuals. They won't abridge right. the rights of individuals to speak. It doesn't have to be a journalist or on a press um and so when now we're under a condition where the state is abridging our, our our freedom uh in that way we're losing a formal right maybe one not one that's completely positive definitely not one that's completely positively developed I mean, but i w- i would point out that in the early days of the internet the fact that the the distribution was instantaneous and that anyone with access to a library a public library or a university library um or anyone uh, nowadays with a, a smartphone which is a lot of people can get access to these platforms without having to pay for them they're not buying a commodity it created a kind of positive freedom that we hadn't seen before that that you know that's why people were you know like the california ideology arose because this seemed like um it was more fr- the technology had delivered a kind of freedom but but of course, the capitalist relations behind that technology were in contradiction to it and and set up this, and set up this problem, really, that, the, that pushed us all the way to losing a formal freedom. Um, right. in the, so that, but nonetheless, my position as a Marxist is we should not accept the way in which capitalism works out of its own problems and should stand instead on the side of hum, everyday human beings and workers to insist upon. Not just the for- formal freedom, but the actual freedom. Um, and, and, and,
1: yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, I would say about about that is that um, I've already stated, like, my case law objections to it. Um, what would your not case because,
0: law objections to it again? It's because It's
1: because broadcasting, like, regulation has been a trade-off to protect people, basically, from evil either civil liberation or from formal regulation by reinterpreting um, freedom of speech in a limited way. So like, like and, and actually this is where like constitutional originalism doesn't help you. If you take a strict constitutionally originalist reading of the constitution, you say, well, it only applies to press and to what you actually say because that's what the little words say. Now, by extension, we know it's really about communication. But um, during the 20th century, that's been chipped away, chipped away, chipped away at.
0: Yeah. Um, But I mean, recently, there were cases where the regulatory state was limited in what it could demand from. Oh, yeah. Because of the First Amendment. And, And in this particular case, establishing a regulatory function is, you know, I think really difficult. First of all, these aren't regulatory bodies, okay? That no, are... th- this is a whole other thing. The thing is that yeah, I mean, this is not being done.
1: There's a strong legal argument that that while while collusion, I'm going to you this. While collusion is a historical norm between the government and private actors, there is Supreme Court case law mm-hmm. that that while not while not and hundred percent strong, because the strongest argument I think it was the Blackman argument. Um, mm-hmm didn't win i'm not i'm not a specialist on law and lawyers can correct me but i do know that like there there is actually there was a free speech absolutist argument made and it's actually made by liberal um but that's not that was not actually the deciding opinion however um the in general it's what is interesting about right now um is that I don't think there's a there is a single friend of free speech in the American um, legal system. Although on particular issues, sometimes Republicans are better on it on this issue. Clarence
0: Thomas was the deciding vote on the the issue that the the uh, the case that I cited about the um, pregnancy center that you know won right the, exactly First Amendment case, but you know it was. Probably idiosyncratic is the the way in which that was enforced. Right. And, the the un, the
1: unfortunately originalism was always kind of a bullshit claim. Um. But but at least with Scalia there was some attempt at it, uh, some attempt. But I know I'll have some some law people get mad at me. Look, but, th-
0: but see this is this is how we're going see like from from my perspective, and I know this is sort of a uh, simple minded approach. Up until recently, people would be saying on the left, I am for free speech, of course. I don't right. now, there's been a total immersion. Co- co- I don't support government censorship or abridgment <laughs> of the free press, right? Uh, and, Daniel Todd and, and I actually talked about this that, that like And now what, we have a moment where that is, you know, for a number of we can make really good arguments, some that I think would hold up in a court of law. But that are certainly justifiable to lead our politics. I mean that, you know, politics and the and legal arguments are not the same thing. Um, Absolutely right. And I I don't uh, I don't really think that this should be worked out in the courts alone by any means. I think that, you know, the left coming to a certain understanding of our situation and the understanding the value of free speech for us in this moment is a possibility. And instead of that, I mean, I you know, you frustrate me when you talk about the oh well, the state has this regulatory function. It's like that is the path towards accepting more and more censorship in the name of I don't know public safety. But a
1: description or, of a fact does not does not mean I accept
0: the fact. Okay, well, good. All right, that's fine. I mean, I uh, that but to be clear about that because uh, you know, one, it even under these conditions, it's not there are America is unique in the way. in to the to the extent to which it doesn't allow the regulatory state to impinge upon free free speech, I'm not saying it's perfect, but I mean, I don't think you'd find um, the ruling that uh, Clarence Thomas gave anywhere in Europe. I mean, no, you know, not even you know, in, right.
1: Not yeah. even in uh in good old England, where there where where these rights are common law derived from, but which they have long since abandoned. I mean, right. I was going to actually say, show a point of why I worry about the left in this principle issue, right? Because yeah, mm-hmm. this is actually going to back you up a little bit, but why I think we have to state this on our terms, beyond any immediate politics of picking between these fucking parties, mm-hmm. um, is because uh, the SDS, the Students for the Democratic Society, what was their primary goal was free speech on campus? How did they not have free speech on campus? And local parental laws being extended into the age of majority through educational exemptions. And mm-hmm. thus, the university having the rights of a parent and a parent thus having the rights to limit your speech um, to some degree. It's moderated now by Supreme Court jurisprudence, but at the time it, there was no moderation. So that, that students didn't really have um, free speech even in public institutions. All right. So they fought the in local parental laws. And local parenthesis laws have been invoked in arguing for a lot of the campus um, moderation of who can speak on safety reasons. They've actually been done through um, reintroductions of local parenthesis laws. And ironically, reintroductions of local parenthesis laws that really began under the Reagan administration. So I think there is an empirical, substantive case to what you're saying. And there's also. Separately from that, that there's an abstract principle, and I, I want to like articulate the principle here mm. equality and freedom in my mind actually are not are not opposed the way say Murray Rothbart would oppose them all right mm-hmm. but they're actually dependent on one another you can't you cannot have um, oh yeah, I, I guess say it
0: because I you agree
1: you cannot have. Equality without freedom, if only in the sense that if someone has has limited your freedom, they have to have an ability to do that. That ability is is manifested through force that's also going to be manifested in other ways, it does end up being a reification of a power distinction in both culture, but also in the means of production um, mm-hmm. through relations of production. Meaning that without freedom, there is no possibility of an equal society. Why? Because there's always going to be someone who is a person to adjudicate that if you do not, if people are not free to speak and come up with this stuff on social consensus values, which is Mm -hmm. why I don't think. You can separate, I don't think you can separate the the one that we always forget is eternity, but it's always conservatives who point out the contradictions between liberty and freedom. And I'm like, well, we can do. You mean equality
0: equality and and freedom? freedom,
1: Yeah. Yeah. Equality and liberty. And I'm always like, yeah, but there's also no way in which you can have um, equality without freedom. So you might, maybe you can have freedom without equality. I'm not sure that you. One person might.
0: Yeah. As an individual, you might. Dr. Doom. In secret wars, where he has all the power of God and can dominate the, everyone, he could have. But right. otherwise, you know, right? Actually, you're right. If if you're in that system, the person,
1: uh, if, if you do not have equal power, and equal power is got to be tied to equal equal access to the fruit and ability to decide your role in production, mm-hmm. um, you literally cannot ever be um completely free because you are mitigated by. An unequal access at birth um, to material, and thus you are in a you know unable to, um, but you ha- you're more compelled by accidents that have nothing to do with your own,
0: with your right. own being. Just it has right. to. Do right. with and the we don't have to have capital. some, you know, w- and we we don't have to reach for um, perfect equality or uniform no. equality but the, the 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 point is that these freedom and equality like you said are are connected the more the the more constrained people are overall the more people are constrained, like numerically the more people are constrained the less um equality there will be right um, just in, and just and in general that's just in general so absolutely and and but so you know um what what has bothered me, and this is maybe just because I'm so caught up in left bullshit, is just this slow erosion of, the, of any commitment to freedom and particularly of free speech. Because for me, that's maybe because I write books and make videos and things like that, but also just because it, I think I can justify the idea that, that if we cannot speak freely and think freely and and associate with each other freely then we will never have any other form of freedom i mean right. i mean now to say that is maybe overstating because we could be driven underground and have to develop networks of freedom and speech between each other but to the degree to which we don't recognize that the need for it <laughs> the, is the degree to which we're unlikely to do that even right so, you know, uh, um, conditions of massive oppression. Our our
1: disagreement was merely on whether or not I thought the Constitution was sufficient grounds to base that on. And um, I think to some degree, yes, although I sometimes go back and forth on this, but there's a propertarian interest in the Constitution that has to be dealt with because it actually cuts against this. And I also think as soon, if we were to win against the state, our next goal has to be to actually gain control of these mediums because otherwise, like we will never really have free speech on them. There will always be an incentive to, but there's other things we have to do between that. We have to, for yeah. example, uh, both- but, I mean, but
0: in the meantime, though, we do have the capacity to say to uh, our elected representatives, if you continue to support the abridgment of free speech you're losing my support and as leftists we should know that they're going to continue to abridge our free speech and the democratic party should lose our support over this i'm not saying that republicans should gain it i'm just saying that that this well, should be this a, is an a absolute good break time point. to our parent room topic because mm-hmm. uh i actually i am um
1: i am I am struck by two ironies. One is, I think, for a lot of millennials, the the most uh, the, their repetition compulsion, their relitigation stance, uh, is not going to be a war, which it should be. It should be the Iraq and Afghanistan war, uh, but it's going to be the 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 Trump election, which is a farce.
0: If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.